Gracious and loving God, uh, we pray that only your word be spoken, only your word heard, and only your word lived. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my friends, uh, I think you might notice something a little different about me today. I have uh, a caller. And so this, a couple days ago, I was ordained a deacon, which was really exciting. And uh, we actually had a a very small service, and it was still, in its own way, very loving, and very meaningful. Uh, but I bring that up because um, I realized then, and I've been realizing it for a while now, how much I actually miss uh, gathering with you um, physically. You know, I'm very grateful for the technology that we have that makes it possible for us to gather virtually, but it's just not the same. Uh, even being able to see family on screens, it's great and all, but I miss... Uh, getting together with my friends. I miss having uh, dinner with my family, you know, in person. Um, I miss it so much, it it just hurts. And I think if you're feeling like me, and obviously we're all experiencing this isolation together, you've asked yourself some serious questions about faith in Jesus. I know that recently a question that I've been asking myself quite a bit is, what does Christianity amount to in our time of isolation, in our time of loneliness and of suffering. And I was thinking about that because last week uh, was Easter, uh, the you know first Sunday of Easter, and we were preaching, we were teaching, we were proclaiming, like the disciples, uh, what we heard in verse uh, 25 of gospel reading. We were saying, we have seen the Lord. And it was very exciting. And yet this week, Thomas has been making a lot of sense to me. And Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And you know, Thomas's reply just feels right. You know, it, when people tell us about Jesus, I think, I mean, it comes to mind and we feel something like, you know what, Jesus, unless you can let me know that things are going to turn out okay, I'm not sure that you're a source of hope. I need to be able to put my finger on this hope. I want to put my hand on your side and know that you are who you say you are and that I can trust you. Now, this is real. Uh, This is honest. And my friends, there's no shame in doubting. There's no sin in that. But I want you to hear what Jesus says to us. Jesus says, peace be with you. Stop doubting and believe. Now you could be asking yourself, well, how do I do that? How do I simply stop doubting and trust you when everything is so wrong in the world and in my heart? Well, I'm really glad that this Sunday we had uh, the reading from Peter's letter to the church because what he writes is so important. It's key, actually. And what he says, if I can summarize it, what he says to us is he says, we need a living hope. We need a living hope in order to cope with all the loneliness, the difficulty, the suffering that we experience. Now, in this letter, uh, Peter is responding to early Christians who are being persecuted uh, for their faith. And so some are having their houses plundered. uh, Others are being killed. And they're going through intense suffering. And Peter tells them, that the only thing that will get them through this difficult time 
is a living hope. And that means that without it, they just aren't going to make it. Now, what does Peter mean by a living hope? Uh, well, this past week, as I was reflecting on the nature of suffering, I turned to an old classic. It's a book called My Man's Search for Meaning, and it's a book written by uh, Viktor Frankl. And he was a famous Jewish psychiatrist that survived the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps. And his writings have so immediately formed uh, my approach to the reality of human suffering. And as I was reading the book, I, I mean, it's evident that he was an insightful counselor. I mean, he was fascinated with how people responded to suffering. And so let me paraphrase his insight on human suffering. Uh, Frankel says, many prisoners just lost hope and with all hope, he lost his spiritual hold. Usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Now, this is a paraphrase of what Frankl says about this, and it's not only insightful and interesting, but I think it's important for us to hear. Uh, he continues, Many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. If they could just stay alive, they could get their hope back, but after liberation, so many found, when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they had longed for. Many people went into deep depression for the rest of their lives after their liberation, or even committed suicide. And he continues, So many of us said to ourselves in the camp that no earthly happiness could compensate us for all we had suffered, and yet afterwards we were not prepared for the disillusionment. So he said, first of all, some became brutal, and then, and then others just shriveled up and died. And some simply ke- uh, held on. They were just thinking, if I could get out, then I'll have my meaning and life back. And yet when they got out, they realized that they didn't. And yet, in his writings, uh, Frankel recognizes that there were a small group of survivors who actually kept what he calls their inner liberty. Uh, they obtained an inner strength. And so he asks, why? I mean, what creates the difference? And so then he says, life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. And so here's the question, what is the foundation? What, I mean, he had to ask this question because... Um, People like he would talk to people and they'd come to him uh, for counseling. They'd come to him. They'd say, well, doctor, how can I handle all of this? And he would say to them, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. And so he would say to his friends, well, just remember that someone's looking down on you from heaven, a friend or a spouse uh, or God. We must not disappoint, disappoint them. And so as I was reading Frankel's reflections, what I noticed is that he was saying exactly what Peter was saying. What he was saying is, 
Do you know what the foundation of your personality really is? It's what you're living for. It's your hope. It's your future. And so here's what Frankel and Peter are both saying. They're both saying your future hope completely determines how you handle your now. Can I say that again? Your future hope completely determines how you handle your now. I mean, Frankel is very helpful. He makes a list of hopes and he says that if you make your ultimate hope any finite object, such as health, family, professional achievement, fortune, or position in society, he makes it clear that suffering is all of these things being stripped away from you. So that if you make any of these finite things your ultimate hope, when you lose them, and in life we do lose them, you will just give up. You'll just stop living, you'll stop hoping, and then you're just going to exist in incredible cynicism and disillusionment. That's so sad, and I think that his insight is right. My friends, how you handle your now is essentially a function of what you are for. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our ultimate hope? And Peter says, here's what Peter shares with us, that through Jesus, there is a living hope that goes way beyond anything that we could hope for, anything that Frankel could even imagine. You see, Peter reminds us that in Jesus, we find our living hope, a hope that meaning and suffering and even death cannot destroy. And so let me articulate this carefully because it's so important and we can't miss it. Our living hope, let me tell you what it is. Our living hope is that if you are following Jesus, suffering will transform you into someone like Jesus. And therefore, you will experience God's life and love today and forever. You'll notice that this is a future-oriented perspective, right? So you're thinking about your future and you're bringing that reality and you're integrating it into your present And that means that if this is your living hope, it's going to transform your heart. It's going to transform your every day. It's going to transform your life right now. I mean, this is what Viktor Frankl talked about, right? A hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. And so let me, um, in case you're wondering about this, uh, let me show you how this future-oriented perspective changes your life right now. I... I want, you to, I want you to imagine two people working uh, at the same j- difficult job, side by side. Uh, and the one, uh, one worker has been promised 20000 a year with no benefits and no vacations. And the other has been offered $20 million a year. Now, both are working the same back-breaking job. I promise you that one of them will say, you know, I just can't do this anymore. And the other will say, man, this is so tough, but it's going to be okay. Same work, same back-breaking conditions, yet one will be able to endure it. Why? It's their future hope. It's their hope that carries them through. Our living hope is that if you are intentionally following Jesus, your hardships and sufferings aren't meaningless. That means that if you're hurting and you're suffering and you bring your broken heart to Jesus, you will be transformed. And as you weep and as you pray and as you talk to your friends and God, God will transform you into the person God always meant for you to be, a person like Jesus. 
That's the promise. You know, and as I say that, I've been reflecting on that. I acknowledge how weird and maybe how uninteresting that might sound, right? I mean, you might be thinking, you know, if I'm going through a hard time, I'm not look. I'm, I'd rather you just make me feel better. I'm not looking to be like Jesus, whatever that means. Why would I even want that? Well, here's why. You want to be like Jesus because Jesus went through the worst human suffering all the while trusting in God. And because he loved and trusted God, the fact is that suffering and death didn't have the last word. Jesus suffered and he was killed, but God brought him back to life, a life with the complete approval and love of God forever. I mean, right now, Jesus enjoys the kind of life that all of humanity has only ever dreamed of. And the beauty of this is that he's offering this to you today. All you have to do is accept his gift and take it to the center of your life. And everything's going to be different. Now here's an important point that I think we all have to hear and keep in mind. That if you accept Jesus' gift and you put it at the center of your life, it doesn't mean that you aren't going to hurt. It doesn't mean that suffering isn't real. I mean, a living hope isn't putting a happy front on hard circumstances. No way. I mean, as Christians, we still cry. And when things are really tough, we still scream. I mean, do you remember the story of Job? Uh, when his uh, children uh, were killed and he lost his wife and he lost his health and wealth and he lost the respect of his best friends, Job cried out. And the Bible says, in all this, Job sinned not. So if you're a Christian and you're wanting to put this living hope in your heart, I mean, you're still going to cry. You're still going to hurt. The difference is that in the midst of the tears, in the midst of terrible circumstances, a living hope, yeah, it hurts, but it doesn't despair. It hopes and it trusts. And as Peter says, actually, it rejoices. That's weird, isn't it? I mean... I think that the idea of rejoicing in the midst of suffering just sounds wrong. And yet, I think the reason why we can't imagine rejoicing in suffering uh, is because for average folks like you and me, our hope is a circumstance, right? And so we can't have joy in any circumstance because our joy is a circumstance. I mean, do you remember Frankel's list of finite hopes? Uh, Health, family, professional achievement, fortune, position in society, right? We have those at the center of our life, and he already told us where that leads. But a living hope in Jesus is different. Trusting him does something so strange and beautiful, and I'm so glad how Peter illustrates it. I mean, Peter says in verse 7, These trials or these difficulties or these sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I mean, look at that. When you put gold in the fire, what happens? I mean, it gets brighter. It gets refined. And what is the fire? The fire is our suffering. Our living hope in Jesus isn't based on circumstances. That means that even when you're in the fire, you're leaning more into Jesus. 
You're praying more. Uh, you're spending more time reading in uh, God's Word, just spending more time with God in prayer. And you're imprinting God's promises into your heart, into your mind. You're actually being driven into Jesus. You're being rooted deeper into His truth and to His love. Your faith is actually getting brighter and your living hope is getting stronger. In fact, as you get closer to Jesus, what's going to happen is you will rejoice at His promise that no matter what happens, you will be with Him forever and no one can take this away from you. And this living hope completely determines how you handle your now, not with fear and despair, but with faith, with hope, and with love. Now, you know what? Uh, Maybe this idea to some of you uh, is new, and that's okay, right? But you might be wondering, well, how do I begin to put this living hope at the center of our lives? Well, the answer is actually in verse 8. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and glorious. Here's how you jumpstart your living hope. This is how you jumpstart your trust in Jesus. Don't look at the abstract. You have to look at him. You have to look at Jesus. Do you know what I recommend? Spend time with his story. I mean, just sit down and read the Gospel of John in one sitting. I mean, you could read the whole Gospel of John in about 45 minutes max. And when you spend time with his story, you're actually spending time with Jesus. And if you put this living hope at the center of your life, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start appreciating what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And you're going to love him for that. And your faith in Jesus will be strengthened. And you will know that no matter what happens, nothing can take away your future with God. And that's going to make all the difference. You'll see the truth. Not that you won't suffer, but that when you suffer, you will become more like Jesus. And that means that for you, suffering and death is not the end. And that's the promise. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, our living hope, in life and in death, we cast ourselves on your merciful care. You love us because you, uh, we are your own. We have no good apart from you, and we could ask for no greater gift than to belong to you. This is a hope that neither suffering nor death can destroy, and for this we thank you. Amen.